that we were able to do it. This was a man that uh, I met for the first time about three years ago uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, instantly knew there was a connection and and with with our pastors, Pastor Earl and Marcy down in St. Augustine, Florida, we've been connected for the last several years, and it has been a blessing to be around him the few times uh, that I've gotten to be with him. And uh, this is a man of God that preaches boldly, preaches a powerful message of the kingdom. You guys want to go ahead and bring that, please? Um, and uh, so we are excited to have Pastor John with us. We are honored. Uh, last night he got to speak to our leadership team, and what a powerful time we had uh, together. Uh, we are all going to be better because of it. Uh, but I want you guys to have attentive hearts, attentive minds, uh, ready to receive the word of God this morning as Pastor John comes. It's an honor to have you, sir. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Love you. Good morning. God is good. Amen. Well, welcome uh, this morning to the service. And I thank you for welcoming me. Uh, this was not... Uh, Planned by man, this was ordained of God. So it's a good, good thing for me to be able to be here. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for the opportunity. Hallelujah. And uh, I know uh, your wife Ashley has been believing God for me to straighten you out for a, a number of years, and and so uh, uh, we'll do our best to get that done today. Uh, just just playing, of course. But it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, there's no way in a couple of services I can uh, contribute, cover, uh, unload as much as I want to on you and to you. So we have a number of CDs back there and a book. Uh, this CD series is brand new. It's called Faith, Fathers, and Family. Uh, we taught this to um, to men specifically regarding how to, how to take the spiritual lead in your household. How to take the spiritual lead in your home, in your marriage. God, God made man first on purpose. God made the male first on purpose. God did not make the woman first. Thank God for women. Because remember what God said when he made the man? He looked around. He said, everything I've created is good. He said that about everything. And then after he made the man, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. Remember that? Remember reading that? I know none of you were there then. You don't remember the event. Actually, nobody's that old, but, but, but we remember reading that. It's not good that man be alone. Why, why, would it, why would it be bad for man to be alone? Because men are extremely competitive. Isn't that true? Men are designed, actually, for conquest. Men are designed to conquer. So that's why men go out and conquer stuff. Men feel the sense of, of fulfillment when they conquer something. Even like taking out the trash. We feel better even when we take out the trash. Isn't that right, guys? We feel it. Nailed. Got that done. Got that sucker done. Next, because we have to win at everything. I mean, think about this. Do women race from red light to red light? No, but men do. You know why men have difficulty 
going on long trips with their wife and their family, like on vacation time? Because, see, if men went by themselves or as a group of men, we go from point A to point B, and we don't stop. Women, we got to stop. Smaller bladders, got the kids, smaller bladders, they need, they need food more often, right? And see, that troubles guys, because we have to repass all those trucks and those cars that we already passed. It's the truth. We have to repass them all. And I was riding with my wife, you know, on a, on a, a little longer trip uh, last month, and and I, I felt so stupid. I had to repass that truck three times, and I, and I I know he's looking down at me. What what a doofus! I mean, what a doofus that guy. I mean, that that guy's wife has him whipped. I mean, it's we just like to win at everything. But the problem with that, the problem with us trying to win at everything is we feel this sense of competition all the time. We're always competing with other guys. In other words, if, if, if the earth were just full of men, it would be constant war. That's right. It would be constant war. It would be like those movies that, you know, those far out movies that you see today and, and, and you know, which I, I don't go to many movies, but I, I see the I see there's always a conflict in the video games. There's always a conflict. You know, who predominantly buys those video games? Women? No way. Men. And I don't mean little men. I mean big men buy those. Because they're always wanting to beat somebody. It's the truth. This is the truth. I'm not making this up. This is, a, this is, a, this is not my opinion. This is proven through studies. So... There are certain commercials that appeal to men that you would never see in daytime television. Daytime television, the commercials, all the commercials appeal to women. You don't see many Tide commercials in a sports event. Right? You don't see a a downy or bounce or skin so soft commercial during a football game. Right? But you see it during daytime television. And so, men, it's important. God's designed us to win. He's designed us to win. He's designed us to, to conquer for conquest. But the problem is we often have misplaced conquest. Misplaced conquest. Here's a quick story about that. We know the story of King David. The Bible says that at the time when kings went forth to battle, what happened? This little king stayed home. Right? So, the prophets of God would send the kings to battle. The word king in Hebrew in the Old Testament means can do. A person of conquest. And David was designed for conquest, to go out and conquer something. And instead of going out and conquering the enemies of God, he conquered his neighbor's wife. Right? 
misplaced conquest. So oftentimes in our lives, we misplace our conquest. We look to the wrong things to conquer as men. And it's important that we conquer the right things. And when we conquer the right things, we win. My dad was a professional rodeo cowboy for 25 years. My dad is in the Texas Rodeo Cowboy Hall of Fame. He's in the Pro Rodeo Cowboy Hall of Fame. He's in the National Cowboy Hall of Fame. There are no other Cowboy Hall of Fames. He's in all the Cowboy Hall of Fames. My dad was a real cowboy. My dad conquered animals. He conquered bareback horses, saddle bronc horses, bulls. He conquered steers and calves. He was an all-around champion. He won many, many notable rodeos around our nation. But my dad never conquered the enemy. Are you hearing what I'm saying? My dad was a Division I college football player. My dad was a Marine. My dad conquered a lot of things. He was a Marine in the Korean War. My dad conquered a lot of things, but he never conquered the enemy. So he got conquered. See, there's something greater. There's something greater than conquering all the natural things in life. Some guys are avid hunters. They, they, they conquer that prey. What if, you know, it's deer hunting season. You know, they conquer that buck or they conquer, you know, that elk or they conquer, you know, you have to go a long way to get elk from here, but they, they conquer an animal. My dad even conquered Custer, General George Custer. You mean your dad's that old? No, he was in a movie where he was the Indian that shot Custer with a bow and arrow. So my dad conquered things, but my my dad never conquered the enemy. And he never conquered his fears on how to be a dad. It's amazing what my dad could conquer. It's amazing what my dad could overcome. But my dad never overcame his inability to be a dad. I played all the sports growing up. I played... At a high level of high school football, I played at the school they wrote the book and the movie Friday Night Lights about in Texas. I was on statewide, our state championship game in 1972 was on statewide live television. Our school would charter Southwest Airlines jets to get us to our playoff games. We played at all the major stadiums in the state of Texas. Cowboys, Oilers. All the major college stadiums. My dad never came to one of my games. Little League. Junior high. High school. College. Never came to one of my games. It's amazing what my dad could conquer. But he could not conquer his lack of being a dad. Amen? You see, there's more to being a dad than providing money. There's more to being a dad than being macho. 
There's more to being the dad than being a tough guy. It's being a man after God's own heart. Because we can't, guys, we cannot become the dad God wants us to be until we become like God wants us to be. He's our Heavenly Father. He's the greatest Father. He's the only perfect Father. How did I learn how to be a husband? How did I learn how to be a dad? From my Heavenly Father. Not my natural Father. So it's important that we see the validity and the, and the vitality of being that spiritual head and that being, being that spiritual leader. Amen? We have all these misplaced conquests running around all, all around us. And many times... Those are our examples of fatherhood, of manhood. But those are not God's examples. Those are not the winning examples. My parents separated when I was almost four, didn't get divorced till I was 12. Might see my dad once a year. But the Lord said, I, I want you to honor him when, when I got saved and I became a man myself. The Lord said, you honor your father and mother. I said, God, he doesn't deserve honor. And the Lord said to me very plainly, oh, I didn't know I wrote that in Ephesians chapter 6. Honor your father and mother only if they deserve it. Wow. It says, honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with the promise that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. I want it to be well with me, and I want to live a long time on the earth. So I learned to honor my parents, even in my adult life. Even though I grew up with a drug-addicted, alcoholic mom and an AWOL dad that never paid child support. You see, God has a greater plan for our lives. See, my children have never tasted what I tasted. My children have never seen what I've seen. They never experienced what I experienced. Why? Because I stopped the stupidity by being a man of God and a man of honor that the Lord shows us how to do in the Word of God. Amen? Let me give this to the newest dad. Who's the newest dad? David's not here. How about the newest dad that's here? Who's the newest dad that's here? 16 months? Your child is 16 months? Anybody beat that? All right, here you go. All right. Then there's, there's one more I want to talk about just for a moment. Talking about your identity determines your authority. You know, you can have many identifiers. You can identify with many, many things, but you can only have one identity. And your authority comes from your identity. Your authority comes from your identity. So if your identity is not in Christ, then your authority is extremely limited. But if your identity is in Christ, then you have Christ's authority in your life. Somebody like to have this? Anybody? If you snooze, you lose. All right, you're first. Then if you can't get anything back there on that table, but one thing, I encourage you to grab this book. It's called Life's Priorities. 
This book was written by my first pastor. It was also my uncle. This man is the one that raised up my brother and I in the faith, in the Word. And this book was written originally back in the 70s, but uh, the late 70s, but it's been, it's been re-edited several times and just uh, even recently. This book will really be a blessing to your life. Do you have this book? Okay, there you go. Turning your Bible, if you would, to Romans, Romans chapter 10. And as you're turning there, let me uh, talk to you about a little boy that I read about, heard about. It's at school one day. How many have uh, how many have sons? Look at all these look at all these hands. A lot of sons. Little boy went to school and his teacher was asking him, actually asking all the students, "What's your favorite animal?" Comes over to the little boy and he said, "Fried chicken." And she said, "That's not funny." Even though everybody laughed, just like you, go to the principal's office. So he goes to the principal's office. He, he doesn't know the drill. He's seen those chairs out in the hallway outside the office before, but he doesn't know what the chairs are for. He just doesn't think maybe it's for the nurse or whatever, but not, not anything good. So he gets, finally gets in the principal's office. He said, what are you doing here? I, don't, I would never expect you to be in the principal's office. He told him the story. The principal laughed. He said, okay, son, just don't do it again. Here's your note for your parents. Note for my parents. Yeah, you have to, you came to the principal's office. We need to inform your parents that you were in the principal's office. They have to sign this note. You have to bring it back tomorrow. (gasps) Oh, no. So he goes home. He's so antsy. He's never been in the principal's office before. Doesn't know what to say. His dad came home early for work. He showed him the note. You went to the principal's office. Why did you go? Dad, you've always told me to tell the truth. You've always told me to be honest. My teacher asked me what my favorite animal was. I told her fried chicken. The dad laughed. Dad, she said that's not funny, but you laughed and everybody laughed. The principal laughed. I'm not trying to be funny. Fried chicken is my favorite animal. Okay, son, just don't do it again. She's probably one of those people that really loves animals. She loves animals very much. He said, Dad, I love animals very much. I love chicken, pork, and beef. Okay, son, don't do it again. Goes to school the next day. The teacher asks all the students a question. What's your favorite live animal? She thinks she's going to get around this. He said, chicken. Of course, all the kids are saying puppy dogs and ponies and kitty cats, hamsters, gerbils, rabbits. Nobody says chicken. Why is your favorite live animal chicken? Because I can make fried chicken. Everybody laughed. Go to the principal's office. Goes through the whole drill again. He has to take a note home. Okay, don't do it again. Gets to school the next day. The teacher's going to ask a different question. It's third grade. You know, you're asking a lot of questions of third graders. And they're going to be honest with you. She gets, she's asking the students a whole, whole different question. Each student a different question. Gets to him and says, who's your favorite celebrity? Colonel Sanders. Go to the principal's office. 
You know, kids are honest. Kids are super honest. If you don't want to know their opinion, you better not ask them. You should never ask a child, how do I look? (laughs) Unless you expect a truthful answer with their glasses on. Isn't that true? How do I look today? Well, you look okay, but you looked a lot better yesterday. (laughs) How does this look on me? Well, fine, but I've seen you look a lot better. How do I look? Well, you're really handsome except for that nose. (laughs) They're going to tell you the truth. Isn't that true? They're honest. You know what? God expects honesty out of us. How many realize God can handle our honesty? We're not going to shock God. God can handle our honesty. I want to talk to you about something very critical today for our existence. I want to talk to you about the transforming power of the word of faith. The transforming power of the word of faith. Have you found Romans chapter 10? Let me read this, starting in verse 3, out of the King James, and then we're going to break it down with the Amplified in just a moment. But beginning in verse 3, and I, I encourage you, sometime before I come back, I haven't been here the whole three years you've been in existence, so maybe it'll be another three years before I come back, but I'm giving you a, a, advance notice of homework. Read the whole book of Romans. Romans is a masterpiece by the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, on what happened to us spiritually and what should happen to us spiritually when we become born again. It is an absolute masterpiece recorded for our benefit. You don't even need a concordance for Romans, for the book of Romans. It is is an extreme um, lesson on who we are in Christ. Amen? So verse 3 says this. It says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, I want to start out right there by showing you something that they misspelled the word ignorant. Because you actually spell the word ignorant, I-G-N-E-R-N-T, ignorant. That's how, we, that's how we talk in West Texas. So, they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, how many know that's not a good thing to be ignorant of God's righteousness? Isn't that true? Not a good thing. Now, notice the digression. And going about to establish their own righteousness... Well, that's not good. Have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. Wow. I like to read verses backwards sometimes because it gives us a little more clarity. If you'll, if, if, if you'll see, see something, start at the bottom of the verse. It says, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Here's this word submit. This word is a common word, but do we really know what it means? This word, submit. Is there a Kleenex? 
I just got this on my. There we are. Just one's fine. Thank you. This word is very common, but, I mean, it's commonly used, but it's not commonly followed. It's not commonly known. They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That's a big problem. This word submit comes from two words. The word sub means what? Under, beneath. Marine means what? Marine. Water. Somebody said crazy. Are you Army? You're Marine? Okay. So Marine means water. Marine means water. So submarine means underwater. Or a vessel that travels underwater. So the word sub means under. So, easy, easy to see. Under. But what does the word mit mean? It means to move or not only move, but position. To move or position. So you and I are called here to move under the righteousness of God. It said, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Therefore, what happens to them? It tells us in the previous two statements. Number one, they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Why were they ignorant of God's righteousness? Because they refused to submit or move and position their lives under God's righteousness. So if you and I refuse to submit our lives under God's righteousness, then what happens to us? We're ignorant of God's righteousness, number one. And number two, the next thing we do is they're in the middle of the statement. What does it say? We establish our own righteousness. So if we refuse to submit or move under or position our lives under God's righteousness, then we're ignorant of God's righteousness. And therefore, we begin to establish our own means of righteousness. In other words, this is something the Spirit of God said to me a number of years ago. People begin to change their doctrine to accommodate their lifestyles. In other words, we do our own thing and then ask God to bless it. Do you understand how common that is in the American church? In America particularly? It's extremely common that we do our own thing. We do what we want to do and then we ask God to bless it. Why? Because when we do what we want to do, it doesn't work. We establish a means of our own righteousness. Well, that's extremely problematic. Because the word righteous means right-wise or right-standing with God. And it's impossible for man to become right with God on his own. 
The only way we could ever become right with God is to submit to His righteousness. That means submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See, we want our cake and eat it too. And the only way to have your cake and eat it too is to follow the established righteousness or right standing with God. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot gain a right standing with God through your own ability, your own intellect, your own works. Come on. It's impossible. It's impossible. Now, Romans proves it to us in these following verses. Look at verse 4. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. In other words, Jesus is the completion, the end, the finito, the last. There is no more ability to become righteous other than through Christ. Now I've asked them to put these... Up in the Amplified now, and let's, let's look at verse 4. Now, I call the Amplified version the female version because it's extremely detailed. Now, what I just read in King James is very short, but look how long this is in the Amplified. That's why I call it the female version. Average man speaks ten to 12,000 words a day. The average woman speaks thirty to 40,000 words a day. Okay, but my wife says... Honey, that's why you love it so much. Now look at this. For Christ is the end of the law, the limit to which it comes or ceases to be. For the law leads up to him who is the fulfillment of its types, and in him the purpose for which it was designed to accomplish is fulfilled. So ultimately, that... First sentence, detailed as it is, is telling us that Jesus is the end, the completion, the fulfillment of the law. He's the only one that could fulfill the law. He's the only one that could perfectly walk the law out. And He is the fulfillment, the completion. In other words, we are no longer supposed to be operating in the law. Now, there's a great movement for whatever crazy reason. I know ultimately what it is. But there's a big movement across our nation and the world today for people to go back and function under the law. To start performing sacrifices. People that used to believe like you and me. To go back and start performing Old Testament rituals. But wait a minute. You're going to have to tear out the book of Romans to be able to do that legally. Because Jesus came to fulfill or to complete or to end the law. He is the final sacrifice. He is the great sacrificial lamb. He's it. End. Enough said. It goes on and says... That is, the purpose of the law is fulfilled in Him. The means of righteousness or right relationship to God to everyone who trusts in, adheres to, and relies on Him. 
Now, now we're going to focus on that just for a moment. For those who, it says in the King James and other versions, to those who believe. Say believe. It's the word faith. It's the word faith. To those who believe are those who are in faith. It's the Greek word P-I-S-T-I-S or pistis, which means faith. But notice, notice God's definition for faith. God's definition for believing in Him. He tells us, for everyone who trusts in, here it is. Everyone who trusts, everyone who adheres to, What does it here mean? Stick or stuck. A lot of people are stuck, but they're not stuck on God. Huh? Instead of S-O-G stuck on God or S-O-H stuck on Him or S-O-W stuck on the Word, they're S-O-S. Stuck on stupid. Don't look around. All right. So trust in, adheres to, and relies on. That's what it actually means to be in faith. That's what it means to be in faith. Amen. If you're not totally trusting in Him, you're not in faith. If you're not stuck on Him, you're not in faith. If you're not relying on Him, you're not in faith. You're doing your own righteousness. That's what this is linked to, right? Righteousness. Amen. When I trust in, I adhere to, and I rely on, what ultimately does that mean? That ultimately means I'm all in. I'm not partially in. I'm all in. That means I'm no longer in control. Um, Set a fire down in my soul. That I can't contain. That I can't control. He wants to control you. You know, we hear a lot about demon possession. Right? But do you know that Jesus wants to possess you? Jesus wants to be in control of your life? Jesus wants to be Lord, Lord of your life? You see, He chose to be Savior. That's His choice. That's His doing. He willingly died for us. Amen? I didn't make Him Savior. He made Himself Savior. But I make Him Lord. He didn't make Himself Lord. He's not a dictator. He's not a tyrant. I make Him Lord. Is Jesus Lord of your life today? Is Jesus Lord of your life today? You know, some people, they can't look at me. They can't look at the pastor. They can't look at somebody preaching because they want to be Lord. They can't submit because they want to be Lord over their own lives. Wow. But here's, here's the way this works. You know, many of us, we, we can work outside in the commercial realm, in the secular world, 
And we want to be a supervisor. We want to be boss. Maybe we're an owner of our own business, etc., etc. And we expect our employees to submit to our rules, our regulations, our policies, the way we operate in our business. Or maybe you're subservient to a CEO or an owner of a company or a, a corporation. They have policies, they have regulations, they have rules, right, that you submit to if you're going to work there. Isn't that, isn't that the way it works? However, we come to a church, we come to a ministry, and we have this mentality, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Praise and worship leader says, let's lift our hands and worship God. Some people wouldn't lift their hand if Jesus walked in and said, I've got a bus on the way out to heaven. It's parked outside. Who wants to go lift your hand? Some people wouldn't lift their hand. Just because somebody said lift their hand. Come on. What does that reveal? You're not submitted. You want to be boss. It's that simple. It's that simple. I learned that when I, I moved from the Metroplex, Dallas and Fort Worth, to West Texas. And I was an athlete, and I had no problem in the Metroplex being an athlete. I grew up four years younger than my brother. I didn't have any friends my age in my neighborhood. So I had to play with my brother's friends. They were four years older. That means I got picked last every time. But I hated getting picked last, so I worked on developing my skills. I worked hard at winning instead of whining. For every parent, there's a little lesson there. If your child is a whiner, they're not a winner. If you allowed your child to whine, they'll never win. Okay, no extra charge for that one. I know 50-year-old whiners. I know 60-year-old whiners. Because their parents allowed them to whine. Okay, I'll go on. So I had, to, I had to work extra. So I wouldn't get picked last every time. So I learned to catch the ball. I learned to bat. I learned to kick ball. I, know, I learned it all. And I was able to play at a higher level when it came to to competing against my grade because I was used to competing at a higher level. And therefore, when I went into Little League Baseball, I only played three or four games because at my age group it was called the Minor League, but I only played two or three games because I got picked up by a Major League team of guys that were two years older than me. And I never played right field in my life. You know, my short life, I'm, you know, I'm 10 years old. Never played right field. But the coach thought, you know, right field is just, you know, nobody ever hits it to right field. Not many left-handed batters. This guy hits it to right field. He thinks he, he hit a single. So he jogs the first base. But I'm used to playing at a higher level and a higher speed. So my very first game in that upper league, I charged the ball and I threw the guy out at first base from right field. 
That was the third out. And their run didn't score because I threw the guy out. And you know what? I didn't get stuck in right field anymore. I got to play my regular position because I could also bat. Now, here's, here's my point. Here's my point. Not, it's not about my athletic ability. My point is this. I learned to submit. I learned to grow. I learned to come under difficult circumstances at an early age and use it for my benefit. Instead of, I always get picked last. Nobody ever picks me. See, we can use resistance as something we can grow by. Instead of something we can whine with. Amen? You know, that's how God operates. God functions that way. And God teaches us not, not to be a victim, to, but to be a victor. Not to be the victim. We have a whole society of victims out there. I got cheated. Life is so unfair. My parents ripped me off. They were unfair to me. My doctor spanked me too many times when I came out of my mama. Life is so unfair. And we developed this whole generation of victims. Victims. Not taking responsibility for their own actions. Amen. And we brought that mentality right into the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have a lot of whiners instead of winners, even in the kingdom of God. Whiners. Well, I guess God loves them more than he loves me. I don't know why they got blessed. I didn't get blessed. I've been a Christian twice as long as they have. Developing a whining mentality. Why is that? Maybe because you've just made Jesus your Savior. Instead of you making him your Lord. Because if he's your Lord, he will control under your authority. In other words, you have the authority to make him your authority. He doesn't have the authority to be Lord over you without your authority. I'm trying to say it every way I possibly can from every angle so we'll have understanding. If you and I don't make Jesus Lord, actively make Jesus our Lord, He cannot help us to the degree that He wants and is able to help us. We sing that song, God is Able. That's really never an issue. Now think through that for a moment. God's ability is never the issue. Now I know what the song is singing. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't sing the song, but God's ability is never the issue. That's not ever in question. What's in question is what I do with His ability. What I do with what He's given me. Not what He's done. Amen? You know what? We don't serve the wizard of heaven. Where we sing the right song for the third chorus. We're going to sing it one more time. And we finally tap into this flow. 
And then the wizard of heaven gets busy pulling levers and pulling ropes and punching buttons. Or we give the right amount, or we pray the exact right prayer at the exact right moment, and somehow, some way, God moved in my life. And then what happens? We think that we did one of those things, and then eventually we struck gold. Wow. We struck gold. So we try to reenact that same thing again. Come on, it happens in churches all over the world. Remember that time that we sang that one chorus and God moved? Let's, let's sing that chorus again. Was it really God moving because of a chorus? The Bible says He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? I liken it to this. How many of you bathed this weekend? Lift your hand. Come on, lift your hand up. See, some of you just won't lift your hand for nothing. Just stay your stinky self then. All right. Okay. Of you that bathed, how many of you had to go Dig a well or plumb your house before you bathe. Did anybody have to dig a well? No? No no plumbing? You didn't have to plumb your house? No? You mean the the flow was already there? See, for some reason we've gotten this mentality, even in our circles, that we have to somehow... Get God's attention so He'll move on our behalf. When in reality, all His work is finished. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. He doesn't have to do anything. God's not, we're not dancing with God. We take a step, He takes a step. We take a step, He takes a step. No, that doesn't work that way. God has already provided everything we have need of. It's already plumbed. It's already flowing. Come on. It's already in the spirit realm. All we have to do is the same thing we did when we bathed. We, by faith, we walked over and we turned on the, the valve. And when we, the way we do that spiritually is by what we believe and by what we speak. We're turning on the valve by speaking out the Word of God. By speaking out what we know by faith is already ours. Himself took my infirmity. He took it. Past tense. He bore my sickness. That's bore. He, that's past tense. On his body on the tree. When was that? 2,000 years ago, right? Right? That we, being dead to sin, shall live under righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. I were healed, therefore I am healed. You understand that's not correct grammar, but we're, we're in the South, so it's going to work. Right? I were healed, therefore I am healed. I'm not waiting for my healing. I'm not going to get my healing. It's mine now. Why? Because by His stripes we were healed. Do you understand the difference?
Well, I just don't know about that. That's just, that's just vernacular. That's just semantics. Words aren't that big a deal. God knows my heart. <laughs> Try that at work. Try that at work that words aren't that big a deal. Huh? Right? Next time you're, next time you're in a, you're, you're called a jury duty. See if words matter in the courtroom. Huh? Do words matter in the courtroom? Yeah. In fact, Jesus said, by thy words thou art justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Words are a big deal. Amen? Any of you work in the medical field or ever work in the medical field some kind? What, what job do you have? You're a dietitian. Is it important for you to learn the vernacular of a dietitian? Yeah. So you have clients that come in and you coach them through, you, you, you probably diagnose them, you go through, they go through testing and whatnot, maybe blood tests, et cetera, et cetera. They get on a scale, they, they, you ask them, you interview them, you consult with them, you know, what, what, it, what is your diet, what do you eat, et cetera, when do you eat, all those kinds of things, what kind of foods do you eat, how many calories, et cetera, et cetera. You discuss those kinds of things. So it's vital that you have that kind of vernacular that appeals to them and that you must communicate that vernacular to them. And therefore, you have to study that vernacular to know what you're talking about. In other words, you can't talk to a client and say, uh, you know, the stuff that you, you know, you put, you know, that stuff you put in your mouth, you know, that stuff, you know, the things that, you know, the deals. You know, you, and, and you know, you know the things that, you know, you, that add up every day with the stuff that you put in your mouth. You're not going to be a very successful dietitian if that's the way you talk. Right? What if you, what if you're a, what if you're a, a, a physician's assistant and the doctor, uh, requests of you to, uh, give him some Forceps. And, and, and you're not quite sure, uh, forceps, doctor, are those, are those the thingamajigs, uh, are those the whatchamacallits that you, that, you know, they look like scissors and, 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 and you, you, you kind of open them and you close them. You're not going to be a physician's assistant long if that's all you know. Hello? Right? Anybody work in banking or finance at all? Anybody a teller or banking or finance? Do you think it's important in banking and finance to know the vernacular of banking and finance? To, to know what interest is and what compound interest is? Come on. What an APR is? Do you think it's important to know those things? Yeah. How, how about somebody that works in the field of uh, construction or property management or building trades. Anybody work in those areas at all? Anybody? Is it important to read a tape measure? Is it important to know how to read it? Mm-hmm. Is it important to know math in the, in the building trades? Yeah. You can't say to your to your helper, "Hey, uh, bring me that that uh, thingamajig." You know, you know that that deal. You know that deal that's made out of wood, you know, and it's about this long and this this wide, you know. 
and it's yellow. You mean the ruler? You mean the level? Yeah, you know that thing that has those bubbles in it? Several times in my life I've been able to fly in a cockpit of aircraft, different kinds of aircraft. Uh, for anything from from float planes, bush planes in, in northern Canada and Alaska to um, jets, citation jets. And now I'm not left seat, I'm not I'm not authorized to be a pilot, but I've I've learned a lot about aviation and I've flown a lot of aircraft. So I get to put on the headphones. And I've even flown the plane. I've even landed, taken off and landed planes with the pilot in the left, left seat. But there's a vernacular. There's a vernacular. I never, never forget taking off in a Citation 500 jet from Birmingham. We went into, up to eastern Kentucky uh, for a, a day trip. And it's important that the pilot gets on and communicates effectively with ATC or air traffic control. And you don't you don't get on the radio as a pilot and say, Breaker, breaker one nine. Hey, hey, anybody out there, y'all? Hey, Bub, are you still working today? No, there's protocols that you communicate. They're gonna ask you your tail number. Uh, I don't know if my tail had a number. Oh, your airplane tail. Oh, excuse me, let me get out. No, there are things you need to know. Right? We understand that about every area of life. But when it comes to the Word of God, oh, God understands what I want. You know, He looks on the heart. It's not that important that I speak the right things. You know, God knows me inside and out. He knew me before the foundation of the world, and He understands what I need and what I want. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. God is not up there responding to everything you and I say. (gasps) He's not. We're not dancing with God. He's done everything He's going to do. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, right? He's not dancing with us. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's He doing? He's ever making intercession for you. The accuser of the brethren who is the devil. He's speaking evil things about you. He's talking trash about you. He's talking smack about you. But Jesus is doing what? He's making intercession for you. He's your great advocate. He is actually speaking the word over you. And you don't even ask Him to. Now let me show you something in Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Keep your place here in Romans. We'll come back. Psalm 103. Is this helping anybody yet? Psalm 103. I don't always go to this verse, but it's important that we know this with regard to what I'm talking about. Psalm 103. Look at verse 20. It says, 
Bless the Lord, you His angels, that excel in strength. Margin, my Bible says in Hebrews, mighty in strength. Our angels are mighty in strength. You know, it's remarkable how the world and artist and tradition has has portrayed angels. Michelangelo and other artists, they portray angels as babies. Or they portray angels as effeminate. Right? Or that little chubby, rosy red-cheeked baby playing a harp. Right? Or has a bow and arrow. No. Our angels are not Cupid. Our angels are mighty in strength. They are warriors sent, dispatched on our behalf. But notice what they do, what their job description is. So they're mighty in strength that do His commandments hearkening into the voice of the Word. That do His commandments that hearken unto the voice of the Word. So what are angels' duties? To fan Jesus and the believer that has already gone on to heaven, they fan them and the other ones feed them grapes and feed them juice. You know, no. No. Your angel is dispatched on your behalf to hearken unto the voice of the Word of the Lord. Alright, let's do an exercise real quick. May I borrow this? You may not have a Bible like this. You may have a device. But just hold hold it up to your ear real quick. You that never lift your hand, come on. That, hold up your Bible. Hold it. Did you hear anything? All right, too much wax. Let's go over here on this other side. Any Anything? No. Nothing. You see... Many, in many people, in many circles, they, they get very religious about this book. But all this is is a book. That's all this is is a book. We call it a holy Bible or a holy Bible. But all it is is a book. This book doesn't do you any good until you put a voice to it. How, how how does this book work in hotel rooms around America? Is is it is it making those rooms holy? Huh? Come on, come on. No, this book is not making those hotel rooms holy. There's a lot of unholy things that go on in those hotel rooms, even though there's a Bible in the nightstand. This book in itself is not to be worshipped. If you think you're supposed to worship this book, you're religious and you're misguided. We're not to worship this book. This book is not holy in itself. The words that are in it are what are holy. And we must appropriate those words. We must speak those words. Jesus said, by thy words thou art justified, by thy words thou art condemned. It's what we speak. That makes the difference. It's what we decree. It's what we declare. Therefore the angels go forth and bid our bidding. They do our bidding on behalf of the word of the Lord that we decree and we declare. Be seated. I know you're excited. 
What am I saying here? The Bible is no good to you unless you put it to practice, until you put it to work, until you put a voice to it. The Bible must have a voice. These words must have a voice. Amen. And if we don't put a voice to this, the, these words, then your angels are out of work. Get your angel from under the overpass. Get, make him get rid of his sign that says, we'll work for Christians. We'll work for Christians. We'll fight for a Christian. Just speak the word. What did Jesus say about it? Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He didn't say my Bible will never pass away. Hmm. See, we've gotten religious. You can build your house out of your Bible and your house will still be defeated by the enemy if that's all you do. You've got to put these words to voice. You've got to speak what the Word says. Amen? All right, back to Romans 10. Let's look at verse 6. I'll tell you what, let's jump down to verse, verse 8 in the Amplified. Romans 10, verse 8. The King James says it this way, but, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The Amplified says, but what does it say? The word, God's message in Christ is near you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word, the message, the basis, the object of faith which we preach. In other words, this righteousness must have a voice. This righteousness, God's righteousness, has a voice. The righteousness which is a faith. All right, let's go back to verse 6. Go back to verse 6 of the Amplified. It says, the righteousness based on faith. So what has Paul done between verses 4, 5, and 6? That he, He's contrasted the righteousness on the law, the righteousness of man, now the righteousness of faith. But the righteousness of, of based on faith imputed by God and bringing a right relationship with Him says. So the righteousness of the faith says. Say righteousness says. In other words, righteousness speaks. Righteousness speaks. This righteousness of faith speaks. And this is how it speaks. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Verse 7. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, as if we could be saved by our own efforts. But what does it say? Verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you. It's on your lips and in your heart. That is the word, the message, the basis, an object of faith which we preach. Now let me let me show you something that's extremely important. There is no word in this book other than the word of faith. There is no word in your Bible other than the word of faith. There's not a word of fear, a word of doubt, a word of man. It's the word of faith. God has given us His word. It is the word of 
faith. Amen? It is the word of faith. The word of faith is what we are to preach. The word of faith is the only thing that anybody should ever preach. Not the word of man, not the word of doubt, not the word of fear, not the word of men's traditions, but the word of faith. That's what we should be preaching. That's the only thing that we should preach. Look at verse 9. It goes on. It says, because if you acknowledge and confess. So, so. There's a confession, or again, speaking. There's a confession or speaking involved with this word of faith, this message of faith. So we confess with our lips, and doesn't that make sense? You confess with your lips or your mouth. When you're on a witness stand, have you ever been on a witness stand? You've ever had to testify for anything? You've got to say something. Even if you plead the fifth, you still have to say something. You cannot sit there and be mum without going to jail. Because you're in contempt of court. Are you hearing me? By a representative of God. The honorable judge that sits there. That's in a position that God ordained. Amen. So... We must speak something as believers. We must decree something. We must declare something. He says, we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, and in your heart believe. Oh, there it is again. Adhere to, trust in, and rely on. That's what believe means? Yeah. That God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes. There it is again. Adheres to. Trusts in, relies on. And so is justified. So a heart, the heart believes, and so is justified, and with the mouth, he confesses or declares openly, and speaks out freely his faith, and confirms his salvation. I do this every day. You mean I get born again every day? No. I confess who I am in Christ every day. I speak freely of Christ being my Lord every day. You know, I have a lot less problems than I used to. It's amazing to me. You know, I'm not the smartest guy in Texas, but but I'm top five. It's amazing to me just looking, looking at society, growing up in the projects, growing up in the hood, Knowing what it's like out there in the world. Just looking across society, the people who come to church regularly have less problems than those who don't. Whoa! But even as a minister, I've recognized this. People who practice the word of faith have far less problems than those who don't practice the word of faith. Now let me boast in the word for a moment. Again, I'm not the smartest guy in Texas, but I'm top five. I'm smart enough to see in the word of God, Peter wrote this. 
that all things that pertain to life and godliness are mine. They're mine now. Not just when I get to heaven. But they're mine now. They belong to me now. Faith is now. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is now. Faith is not out yonder somewhere. Faith is not when I get to heaven. Faith is not in the sweet by and by. No, faith is now. 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 It's what I believe, what I say right now. Right now. Right here. Right now. And it's not a matter of mental assent. Well, I believe that, brother. Yeah, I believe that. Or you just sit, sit in your chair and say, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. I ain't saying nothing. I believe that in my heart, but I ain't saying, no, God knows my heart. God knows my heart. I don't have to say nothing because God knows my heart. Why did Jesus, who is also God, why did Jesus say, by thy words, Thou art justified by thy words, thou art condemned. It's not a matter of just God knowing your heart. It's a matter of us following the protocol and following the wisdom of making a statement of faith. Because when I make a statement of faith, what happens? My angels procure favor for me. My angels procure the blessings for me. Do you know that there is a, a warfare going on in the heavenlies today? And my angels need to, need to, who are mighty in strength, they need to have some ammo. They need to have my prayer, my, my, my permission to fight for me. And there's a warfare. There's a fight that's going on for the warf- weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We war not against flesh and blood. That means people ain't my problem. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor right now and say, you're not my problem. People are not the problem. Sure seems like it most of the time. No, doesn't. But people aren't the problem. We war not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers and might. Rulers of the darkness. In high places or heavenlies. There's a warfare taking place. Jesus said this. Jesus said this. That the kingdom of heaven, capital H, is not used there. It means heavenlies. The kingdom of the sky or the heavenlies suffers violence or aggression. And the violent or the aggressive take it by force. Amen. So you cannot be your little goody-two-shoes Christian. Well, I, that's just not my personality to be loud and to be strong in my voice. It's just not my personality. Kumbaya, Lord. Kumbaya. You're going to get run over. You are going to get run over. You need to be aggressive in what belongs to you by faith. You need to take what is yours by faith. And you do that by what you believe in your mouth and what you, what you believe in your heart and what you speak with your mouth. Amen? So let me go back to boasting in the Lord. 33 years ago in August, I married the most beautiful woman in the world. I married the smartest woman in the world because she married me. But I, no, I married God's woman for my life, God's plan for my life. She was five years older. She already had a child. She'd already been married. That husband 
backslid, ask her to backslide, she wouldn't backslide. He committed adultery against her. And he left her with a one-year-old baby. And three years later, God gave her a real man. Me. And we made a decision together. We're going to trust in, adhere to, and rely on our God. We're going to put Him first in everything we do. We're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're not just going to be a tither. We're going to, we're going to give another 5%. We started out in our marriage giving 15%. Now we're at 35%. And we're more blessed than we've ever been. You've heard the statement, you can't outgive God. It's a true statement. God blesses us immeasurably. Now, let me, let me help you on this. We said we're going to trust Him in everything. Everything. In our relationship, our relationships. Parenting our children, we're going to trust Him for everything. We're going to trust Him for our healing. We're going to trust in Pfizer. We're not going to trust in Bayer. We're not going to trust in Tylenol. We're not going to trust in the common things. So we've, in these 33 years, we've not had an aspirin, a Tylenol, an ibuprofen. We've not had an Aleve. We've not had any antibiotics in our body. We've not spent a night in the hospital. We've never missed work for sickness. We don't take NyQuil. We don't take cold cough medicines. We don't take any of that. That's been a lot of money in our pocket. For 33 years, do the math. We've not had a flu shot. We rarely have ever gotten the flu. What do you do? We trust in. We adhere to. And we rely on Him. Oh, we have symptoms try to come against us. Yeah. But we believe God. And we believe God in advance. Now, again, I'm not the smartest guy in Texas, but I'm smart enough to see. Huh. Looking at those commercials on television. Uh, uh, you, you, you have this problem, but you can take this medicine, and then you have this side effects. You have this one single problem, but now you have ten side effects? And if you've been taking this medicine, and it's caused you liver problems, you can call 1-800-SLEAZY-LAWYERS-R-US. Right? Even Tylenol now. They have commercials for lawyers for Tylenol because it attacks your liver. It affects your liver. Some people, they take stuff every day, every day, a handful every day. I take a handful of pills every day too. Vitamin C, vitamin E, garlic. Don't don't get, get too close to me. But I've had no vampire problems either. 
I take, we take vitamins and supplements. We didn't in those early years, but we've, we've learned to grow because we can't get them in the foods today. So we get the supplements and the vitamins, but we don't take meds. We don't take meds. I had E. coli attack my body coming back from Europe one time. And my kidneys shut down. Two and a half days after I got back. And we went to a spirit-filled doctor. I hadn't been able to expend any urine in three days. And he, I gave him the, the only sample I could give him. It looked like molasses. He took blood. Now, I had to have my wife drive me because I was bowled over like this walking into his office. I was sick. I'm not saying when you trust God that uh, symptoms will never attack you. Symptoms will attack you. He comes in and he's white. His face matches his coat. He said, my office has already pre-admitted you to the hospital. You shouldn't have even come to my office. We've got to catheterize you. We've got to get IVs in you immediately. This is a dire situation. I said, I recognize that. I've never felt like this in my life. He said, you have E. coli in your blood. He said, it's systematically shutting down every system in your body. I said, thank you, doctor, but I'm not going to the hospital. No, you don't understand. You don't understand. You don't get what I'm saying. I said, I get what you're saying, but I'm not going to the hospital. I needed to know what it was. Because it has a name that must bow to the name of Jesus. Oh, you, please, please. And he told my wife. He tried to put pressure on my wife. She said, I'm not going to make him go. He said, at least let me write you a prescription. And I'm going to keep you pre-admitted. Because you may find out in a couple of hours you may need to take him. She said, okay, do what you got to do. She took the prescription. She took me home. I got back in bed in my fetal position. I've been confessing the word. Now I'm confessing the word over E. coli. I'm attacking E. coli with the word of faith, with the word of God. What happened? Well, my wife went in the living room, just down a short hall from our bedroom, She didn't close the door all the way. It was open about that much. And I could hear her in there. She's praying. But she's too loud. You know, when you have symptoms like that, you don't want noise. You don't want light. Be quiet, woman. I didn't say that to her. I couldn't yell like that. But I'm thinking, I wish she'd hurry up and go to the pharmacy. She's in there praying, and she's speaking to the E. coli, and she's speaking healing over my body. 
And after about ten minutes, I'm thinking, well, she's she stopped and she's going to go the she's going to go to the pharmacy, but she comes in there and she burst the door open. Again, shh. And I have my back to the edge of the bed, and she comes around behind me and she grabs me in the lower abdomen. Oh my goodness. You're not only noisy, you're not only annoying, you're hurting me now. She said, I command you in the name of Jesus to go to the bathroom. Nobody ever commanded me to go to the bathroom. Yes, ma'am. And for the first time in three and a half, three and a half days, I had an urge to urinate. You don't hear this from many pastors and messages, many preachers before. This may be the only time you ever hear a story like this. And Pastor Mark, I went in the restroom. It seemed like I was in there an eternity. I used the bathroom and used the bathroom and used the bathroom and used the bathroom. That was on Tuesday. I had not been in the bathroom since Saturday. That afternoon, I had a staff meeting with my staff on Tuesday afternoon. Prescription was never filled. Never took any meds. E. coli was defeated and removed out of my body because of the word of faith. The word of faith. Let me show you one more scripture, and we'll close. Second Corinthians chapter three. Second Corinthians chapter three is the last verse in Second Corinthians, verse eighteen. I'll read it out of the King James, and we'll look at it in the Amplified. It says, "But we all." Paul was from southern Israel. We all. With open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed. Say changed. Put the duh on the end of it. Changed. Are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what is he saying? When we look into the Word, we're changed. When we look into the Word... Change happens. In other words, when we take the Word and we mirror our life based upon the Word instead of based upon the world. Basically, what he's telling us here is we become what we behold. What are you looking at? What are we looking at? Because that's what we will become. You know, that's a natural law. That's a natural law. You know why Tide is the number one detergent in all America? You think it's because the best? It's the best? No, it's proven not to be the best. Why is it number one? Because it's the most advertised. By far, it's the most advertised. Even watching NASCAR, a car going around and around and around and around has a huge Tide logo on the hood of the car. Round and around and around. These logos, these images are promoted and produced for our consumption 
to build a brand in our eyes, to build a brand, an image in our eyes. So when we get to the store, we will gravitate toward the things that are familiar to us. That's the whole point. Billions of dollars of advertising are spent on this law of imaging. So what are you looking at today? If you're looking at the world, that's what you'll become. If you're looking at the Word, that's what you'll become. Now look at this in the Amplified. And all of us, in the Greek, what do you think that is? All. A-L-L. All of us, as with unveiled face, because we continue to behold in the Word of God as in a mirror, King James said glass, it means mirror, the Word or the glory of the Lord are constantly being transfigured. Instead of the word changed, it's the word transfigured. Are constantly being transfigured into His very own image in ever-increasing splendor from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Wow. 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 Say that backwards. Wow. Upside down. Mom, thank you. Very good. Now let me show you this word. Transformed. So we look into the word. We look into the counsel of the word. And it says, if we look into the word like a mirror. In other words, we hold up the word. We hold up the Word like a mirror. And we look into the Word and we mirror the Word. Now it looks to me like everyone in here looked in the mirror before you left home this morning. Thank you. And perhaps you looked in the mirror numerous times. Perhaps the first time you looked in the mirror you were not pleased with what you saw. Anybody relate to what I'm talking about? I had a new hairdo this morning. And it was not, it was not one that you would appreciate. So we look into the mirror and we don't like what we see. So what do we do? We make changes accordingly. That's what the Word does for us. If we'll look into the Word of God. We make changes accordingly in our lives. In other words, we don't make the Word change into our image. But we make our image change into the Word. And here's the Word. Transformed or changed is a Greek word. It's only used three separate times in the whole New Testament. Here's the Word. You're going to recognize it. Meta morphu. Metamorphu or metamorphos is for the word we get the word metamorphosis from. So it says when we look into the Word of God, there is a spiritual metamorphosis that will take place in our behalf. We are transformed or there's an exchange taking place. And that's what the word meta means. It's two words. It means exchange. 
The word morpho means outward. For you taking notes, outward form, and I didn't get that written very well. It's kind of a moving target, but the word metamorpho means exchange of our outward form. In other words, when we look into the Word of God, the Word of faith, and we appropriate that Word into our lives, we mirror our lives based upon what the Word sees, says and what the Word speaks. And we speak forth that Word of faith. We decree it out of our mouth. We believe it in our heart. There's a spiritual metamorphosis that takes place on the inside. So that means we're changed from the inside out. Hallelujah. And we're changed and transformed from glory to glory, from faith to faith, instead of from mess to mess and chaos to chaos and trouble to trouble like many Christians live today. Not even talking about the world. They have no hope without Jesus. But even in the church, Many Christians are not walking in the Zoe life, the God kind of life that Jesus said, I'm come to give you life and life more abundantly. Many Christians are not walking in an abundant life because they're not looking into the mirror of the Word and making the appropriate changes. They're changing their doctrine to accommodate their lifestyles. Instead of changing their life based upon what the Word reveals. I'm not supposed to be living my life from mess to mess, chaos to chaos, trouble to trouble. I'm supposed to be living my life from faith to faith and from glory to glory. Now, there's some details in this verse I'm not going to take the time to cover this morning, but we're coming back tonight. So I hope you bring somebody tonight. Give your goldfish a bath next Sunday night. And I know my team, the Dallas Cowboys, and probably your team too. I'm just kidding. They're playing tonight. I I miss the game, gladly, to come and be in the Word. To come and be in the presence of God as we worship God. Let's pray this morning. Thank you, Father, for the Word. Thank you, Father, for the truth. Thank you, Lord, for what you've given us by faith. Lord, we look to you today, knowing in whom we believe, so we can be transformed transfigured translated into what you have for us not what we want but what you want for us and we know what you want for us is better than what we could ever want for ourselves you're our God you're our creator you know how we function best you know what's necessary for us to function best and therefore Lord we choose to trust in adhere to and rely on you with heads bowed eyes closed you say today brother John I I know I'm not trusting and I'm not relying on I'm not adhering to him and his word like I should but I see the need for it I see that it's critical in my life and I make a decision in my heart today to choose the Word over all else, to choose my God to trust in, adhere to, and rely on like none other. Would you lift your hand and let me pray with you all in this room? 
Thank you on my right. Anybody else? I haven't been doing it, but today I decide to do it. Today I make a declaration. Today I make a decision to walk it out by faith. Lord, I pray over this congregation. I thank you, Lord, for the plan of God for their lives. I ask you by faith, Lord.